Welcome back, people. This is not strictly speaking episode five. This is a commentary on episode four. We're going to call this a Jurgen Gate. And why are we going to do that, Aaron? On first name we're, terms. We're on after. first name terms, given we've known each other for about 12 years. But there about you go. 12 years. I think it's time. Episode four, it came out on the day that Jurgen Grobler stepped down as the head coach of British Rowing. And by look, rather than any inside information that we might have had, we were talking about which of Britain's Cox's four Olympic wins was the best row. Not the most culturally significant, not the most dramatic, but the best row. And we plumped for London 2012. Most people seem to enjoy it. Um, and if you haven't listened to it yet, I, I recommend that you do. We walked into an absolute firestorm, a firestorm based largely on the reality that most people liked it. But unfortunately on social media, it's the trolls in the minority who tend to shout the loudest. They weren't very loud trolls. They were very loud trolls. There, there are three topics we are addressing. The first is the fact that Lionel Messi has chosen to leave Barcelona. People are wondering where he's going to go. Is he going to go to Manchester City? Will he go to Paris Saint-Germain? The Belgian is finally leaving his spiritual home. Well, we can reveal that he's going to Manchester, but he's not going to Manchester City or Manchester United. He's actually going to Manchester to row for Agecroft, where he will be appearing in the three-seat of the men's development squad until Dennis O'Neill says otherwise. We've talked to Dennis about this. He uh, says he's delighted by the signing. He's always liked a slightly smaller but skillful man in the ejector seat getting backsplashed by five. It's going to be said at this point, if I could does... put Lionel Messi on a rowing machine and it turned out he couldn't break six minutes on 30, I'd be so happy. <laughs> you know, basically, <laughs> Lionel, you can take all your, um, your, your golden boots and your Ballon d'Or and all of those things. And frankly, if you can't beat six minutes and 30 seconds, well... Yes. In other words, if you can't beat the, the kidney-impaired, kidney-challenged <laughs> member of this podcast, personal and perennial season's best of 6 minutes 30 seconds for 2K, then you should get the hell out of Manchester. But yes, Absolutely. Lionel Messi is moving, or Lionel is moving to Agecroft. The second controversy we are addressing is the, the Farago, the, the Farago that is this nonsense about land of hope and glory. If we are really so reduced as a nation and our self-esteem is so low and our place in the world and our sense of it is so fragile and tenuous that the only thing that makes us feel better is wrapping a flag around our shoulders and bellowing jingoistic and racist sentiments out into the thankless void, we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves. And if you really want a song that we can all come together for for the last night of the proms, I think we should all get together and sing Robbie Williams' Angels. Yeah, I was just going to say, though, that, you know, all those things, I'm a chemistry teacher, I don't know about them, I don't do history, but I do I know can't that Robbie Williams is shite. Well, yes, I'd agree with you on that, but I don't think they're going to go for Enter Sandman, which was my second choice. Oh, that'd be so good. Can you imagine the entire Royal Albert Hall just like howling along the chorus of Sandman? It would be brilliant. It would be but anyway. awesome. But yes, my, my partner in pod has hung me out to drive for both of those because yet again, his quest for serious journalism has been undermined by a flippant gobshite northerner. What are we actually talking about this evening, Lewin? We're, we're talking about the fact that we mentioned Jürgen, British rowing, gold medals, and... There is a certain type of person that does not believe that gold medals can be won freely and fairly. We basically got trolled, and we got trolled by a very specific type of troll, and we'll call them the Digger Forum Fan Club. Now, basically, these guys are a group of cycling sport fans, and they have an enormously valuable purpose, which is that they force us to think critically and objectively about the achievements of our sporting heroes. How they got there, can we actually trust those achievements? But these are not happy people. They compete to see who can be the most cynical. They are people who got into, they are men such as ourselves of a certain age and under different circumstances, we could probably actually be friends. But given they got into cycling in kind of the mid-90s, 
They are people, they are sports fans for whom every bubble has been burst. Every hero is tarnished and every dawn has proved false. I imagine they wake up every morning and they just look at their news notifications from all the cycling magazines and they just whispering a silent pair, please God, don't take Chris Hoy from us. Don't take Chris Hoy. Just, just give me one more day of innocence. I truthfully hope their prayers are answered, but actually researching this particular podcast um, has, has made me worry. Let's just say that. But anyway, they went after Jurgen. They, they thought he was, they thought, they said, they stated with absolute certainty, he was a doping coach from East Germany. But not only that, he coached the East German's women's squad from 1980 to 1990. Um, bizarrely enough, that was only two Olympic Games, Moscow and Seoul, because they boycotted the 1984 Olympics. So if anybody tells you that Jürgen has won a gold medal at every Olympic Games since 1976, it's not strictly speaking true. Um, they did mention how the effects of oral Terenable, which was the East German steroid of ch choice, particularly on women in the long term, are both well-documented and very unpleasant. And they basically said this as though we didn't already know. They said this as though it was news to people who follow rowing and have Google or read the newspapers. Now, we're going to examine this and we are going to take their arguments as seriously as we can. We're going to actually look at the worst case scenario surrounding Jürgen coming to Britain, that it was actually part of a conspiracy to get a doping coach from the former Warsaw Pact to come over and bring what we could euphemistically call the special source into British rowing and make British rowing an undefeatable, unbeatable machine. Because that was the subtext of what a lot of these these troll comments were kind of driving towards. There were a few that stood out with regards to the idea that every other British athletic, every other sport under the umbrella of Team GB and British athletics has had scandals of one sort or another. Why not rowing? As, as though somehow there is some kind of Harry Potter, Hogwarts invisibility cloak around rowing that, that bends the gaze of UK anti-doping away from it. Now we'll, we'll come on to that. You know, just as a brief piece of housekeeping and, and all flippancy aside, this, this will be the last bit before we get into a very serious topic. We'd like to say thank you to Thames Tradesmen, <laughs> who have invented a Broken Oars podcast drinking game. Apparently, if you hear us say the words, the North or Peterborough Regatta or Peterborough Head, you have to take a drink. Now, we did warn people in episode four that if anyone had the words James Cracknell on their Broken Oars drinking games card that evening, they would have been hammered by the time we reached 40 minutes. Now, if on your card this evening you have the words Jürgen, doping, GDR or trolls, we suggest you call work before you go any further because you'll not be going in tomorrow. To come back to it, Loon and I have um, academic backgrounds and the best way to address an academic argument is point by point. So the first thing we have to say is we invited everyone who trolled us to come on the podcast, present their arguments and present their evidence. We, we gave them plenty of time to get back in touch with us before we recorded this. And I think I'm right in saying I've checked the messages. Not a single one did. Is that correct? That's correct. Admittedly, I got rather bored of the abuse and I did start blocking and muting people because you can only be told so many times by someone on Twitter that they're not interested in listening to your poxy podcast or coming on your poxy poxy podcast before you just like go, all right, bye then. There is that. But we did give them the chance and even before Lewin utilised the mutant block button, none of them had actually taken us up on our request. Yeah. As another, another quick point of housekeeping, ju just to uh, make it clear the division of responsibilities... Aaron was the fairly studiously polite one. I was the increasingly shirty one. And, you know, if you have been blocked and you are actually now listening to our poxy little podcast, 
that was me who blocked you and I don't care what you think. And yeah. I, I, I was stunned to see the word studiously polite used by Lewin because he used to roll with me. Indeed. But what I would like to do is present the worst case scenario of Jürgen coming to Great Britain. Uh, essentially an organized version of the, of, of the trolls argument, of the Digger Forum fan club argument, how Jürgen was brought here and what he did over the next 29 years. And it has been 29 years. It's, it's, but it's a big chunk of time that we're looking at. Yeah. And that, that in the final analysis becomes a very significant point. But anyway, Loon. Essentially, they are claiming that there is a level of conspiracy. And it started around about 1990 with the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And a bunch of, we'll, we'll describe them as portly, florid men, altogether too familiar with pims and port and cigars who had at one point, maybe in the 1970s, being quite good rowers. And they all got together in Leander Club, you know, probably during the actual Henley Royal Regatta. And they decided that they were going to do whatever it takes to win. And we don't mean whatever it takes in like, we will ch train as hard as we, you know, as any human being has ever trained, we will, we will give 101%. No, we will do whatever it takes, regardless of the rules. And so they decided to hire that German chap, Grobler, who had in the 1988 Olympics been part of a coaching team that had produced eight gold medals, even as East Germany was falling apart, in a rowing regatta that only had 13 gold medals on offer. So they really knew how to dominate. And they decided to bring this guy who'd been charged with the women's squad, which got four out of six gold medals and an, an extra podium place on top of that and bring him to Henley. And it wasn't just, what they were suggesting was not just, oh, we're going to bring a doping coach in. It was more than that, that there was a cabal of corruption, that the various people who had rowed for Leander Club, who had rowed for the various remnant clubs, there were doctors, there were lawyers, there were politicians, okay? They were sworn to secrecy, they were pressed into service to support the nefarious aim of dominating the rowing lakes of the world for the next three decades. Okay. They had at their disposal this mighty young warhorse, Steve Redgrave. He was an incredible rower, but of course, you have to remember, he had nothing else in his portfolio. He had a strong back and deft oarsmanship, but frankly, without rowing, he'd be working for his dad's building company. They had this new star, this rising star, and the giant Matthew Pinson, in the classic mold of international career rows and being to all the right schools that in turn he would never earn enough to send his own children to because he was a rower and finally they had the the final ingredient which was grobler himself the man with the special source and a history of swallowing his own conscience to get ahead in international sport what happened then the next stage in this cabal this corrupt history was that Barcelona in 1992 led to the greatest victory of Pinson and Redgrave. It led to lasting fame and footballing levels of wealth, fast cars, loose women, mansions in Henley-upon-Thames. And then the talented athletes up and down the country decided to leave their football clubs and the nascent Premier League they decided to flock to Leander Club, displacing the standard crop of Tim Nice but Dims that occupied it, and then powered both by Jürgen's special source and the new spice coming out of continental cycling teams. The, the old guard of rowers are swept away and replaced by bulging muscle, pink-skinned monsters, quick of temper and yellow of eye, and this new physical prowess leads to the domination of the Atlanta Rowing Lake the absolute domination, followed in Sydney by winning all but one gold medal in the men's and women's event. Oh, no, hang on, sorry. That's rowing 
wasn't like that. It really wasn't. That's not what happened in rowing. And this is about worst case scenario breaks down with the historical record. Hold that idea in your head. Hold the idea that this was a doping conspiracy. And what would the world have actually looked like if it had been? And that's what we're going to compare it against. Yes. What Lewin has done there is he has taken the subtext of a very vocal minority of tweets that we received, and he's, he's blown up this subtext. If you're familiar with the works of um, Richard Curtis and Ben Elton, and you've watched Blackadder, he's, he has used uh, comic hyperbole and inflationary rhetoric. We'd like to point out that these are not our comments about Leander Club or the people who drink port and pims there. We are really looking forward to having Leander coming on, and Jack Beaumont has been nothing but supportive to us as we've launched this podcast but he's blown up a worst case scenario because that's what the subtext is that somehow Jürgen was brought in because of his background and that there is something sinister about the fact that for the last 30 years GB rowers haven't returned positive tests and they win things now moving forward if we take this fact by fact does it actually start to break down and play out the way that this inflated concept suggests? Well, the answer is pretty bluntly no. That's not to say that there aren't some areas of concern and nuance that we have to talk about. But first of all, if if I can, Lou, and I'm just going to pick up on on one of the first points, how Jürgen actually got here. One of the trolls said that um, the BOA, the British Olympic Association, rolled out the red carpet for Jürgen as if he's our man, he's going to give us success, whatever it takes, we've got him. Well, the first thing is, as Lewin has pointed out quite correctly, he was appointed by Leander, which is a private uh, members-only invitational club. It was essentially an internal private appointment Jürgen can be placed in the context of being an economic migrant, I suppose, at this point. It was a private appointment. He was recommended to Leander by by other British rowers. At the time, yes, Leander was the... It was the recognised home of British international rowing. So Jürgen's appointment was a, was a, a private appointment by a private club looking to get the best coach in that they could. It wasn't a shoe-in. Even at, even at the level of Leander, uh, if you read Steve's book, he talks about being in on the interview. He was aware that there were rumours of what was happening in East Germany, but nothing at that point had come out. If you go on to read Steve and Matthew's books, they will point out that for the first year before Barcelona, they they had Jürgen somewhat at arm's length because the, the low um, striking rate training that he was giving them didn't chime with their previous experiences of training in Britain. And it was, we'll give this guy a year. If we get start getting results because of it, then we'll stick with him. So he was very much on trial. And it wasn't until after the Barcelona um, Olympics, and Lewin's right to point out that Stephen Matthews row, if you haven't watched it recently and you can find a clip of it, I think it's their most dominant imperious performance. It's a beautiful um, coxless pairs row. Afterwards, Jürgen was appointed, and this is where it starts to get interesting and nuanced. We have a reputable source who has it on good authority. Jürgen's elevation to head coach of the entire team was not red carpet, wasn't rolled out, he wasn't just ushered in, it wasn't cloak and dagger. There were, apparently, some dissenting voices among the ARA council when it came to it, his past was mentioned and it was brought up. So there was, there was an awareness there. It's probably the best way of saying it. I would also say that what was known and what was not known between 1990 and 1992 is, is a little bit difficult to ascertain. What we know now is that Jürgen was in charge of a doped program. How much he was in charge of this, we don't know. How much he pushed this or pushed against it, we don't know. But his involvement in 
what can fairly be described as corrupt and cruel practices of the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, always a fun joke, that one, cannot be questioned. It's a matter of uh, public record in Germany, where, where they've had inquiries into this, that the concept of a clean East German athlete in any sport was an anomaly. You know, they might have had an archer that wasn't taking steroids. But Jürgen has also briefly, but he has admitted his involvement in this, these practices to the British media. Has he been completely forthright and totally honest? No, but would you really expect someone to, who is not exactly famed for his emotional incontinence, to be totally forthright about probably something that causes him a significant amount of pain and shame? I think that Lewin raises a very good point. Firstly, Jürgen has admitted to his part, he may have done it in a very carefully worded way, but he has admitted to his part and his role in what was a statewide, state-sponsored, state-driven doping program from a totalitarian regime, which, as all totalitarian regimes does, uses the medium of sport to push home to the rest of the world how wonderful it is in its um, state. Sorry, um, point fact, other than the People's Republic of China, which is a paragon of clean sport and fair play. But you were saying... Indeed, one child, two doors, three houses, four pets. That's, that we'll elaborate on that at a later date. What Jürgen has said and what we, what we can actually know, well, here's the thing. We know that he was involved. He has admitted it. We know what went on because there have been reports of what went on that have come out since his appointment. What was Jürgen's actual role in this? Well, that's unless he actually wants to sit down and be explicit about it, it's almost impossible to weigh up an account of what Jürgen was actually doing in the GDR versus what we are told because the GDR Stasi threw all the papers away. We have a nuanced narrative um, emerging we also have a nuanced narrative with regards to the fact that we know it went on. We have a much fuller picture now. Jürgen has, has stated his role within it. I yeah. would probably say, we have to say, that Jürgen's narrative has probably been managed to a certain extent by British rowing. There is a certain kind of smoothing, perhaps, would be the best way of putting it. And when I suppose when someone is delivering you the success that Jürgen has, you might want to present the narrative in a certain way. And that's probably been the case. But against that, you have to weigh the fact that these things are historical record and Jürgen is on record of talking about them. So they're hardly hidden. Now, the question is, should, first of all, Jürgen's past in the GDR disqualify him from all future sporting participation and, in fact, disqualify everyone he has worked with from being able to take pride in their achievements and to hold their medals. And I would say there is actually an argument to be made for that very case, that once a doper, always a doper. If you have done anything like that, it's time for you to find a new career as soon as you're caught. However, if you accept that argument, you have to completely disregard the long-accepted legal defense of duress. Jürgen Grobler, like the 99.9% of all East Germans throughout his life, had a gun to his head. It wasn't a metaphorical gun. It was someone, if they really didn't like him and didn't like what he was doing and saying, would come along and shoot him. And East Germany was, by all account, accounts, the nicest of the Warsaw Pact regimes, but they would have still probably shot him if he was going to stand up and say, look, we shouldn't be giving the little blue pills to these strapping 19-year-old farm girls from Dresden. And if you're the kind of person who's sitting here saying, well, no, I would have never have done such a thing. I would have made a stand... I'm going to say that I sincerely hope that you are never in such a circumstance where you have to find out exactly what kind of person you actually are. 
at the end of the gun barrel. I would agree with that point, not least because um, we all like to think that we would do the right thing, that we would be like Robert Downey Jr. in the in the Avengers, we would stand up for right and truth and all of those things. Unfortunately, history tends to show us that when brutal totalitarian regimes are in place, and they tend to be put in place either gradually in the case of Nazi Germany or sweepingly in case of the Iron Curtain coming down, most people don't stand up. And the ones that do end up being taken out, as Lewin pointed out, into the yard and having a bullet put in the back of their head and then they're dumped in a pit and a shovel full of lime is thrown over the top of them. And most people, some of you out there, some of the trolls listening to this might go, well, yes, I would do that because it would prove a point. And most people would go, actually, I have a wife and I have children and I, I'm just going to keep going and see what happens because that's the reality of humanity. The other point Lewin raised was the idea of duress. And I'd just like to say this we have in this country an evaluatory system that percolates down from our legal system through every single one of our safeguarding mechanisms all of our checks and balances where we're not whitewashing Jürgen's past but our evaluatory system is based on the idea of beyond reasonable doubt and on the balance of probability. Now that's enshrined at a legal level, and as I say, it percolates down through all of our safeguarding systems, including our anti-doping systems and our, and our athlete welfare systems and all of the rest of it. Part of that at a, at a legal level is the idea that we have a rehabilitative justice system. It, you mean we can't uh, just hang them and flog them? We can't hang them and flog oh, them anymore. Those, those days sadly are past. It's political correctness gone mad, Aaron. It, political, it is in, it's political correctness gone mad. It is indeed, Lou, and I, I still can't get used to us using our first names after only 12 years. It doesn't feel quite British to me. Right. Rehabilitative justice, what does that mean? It means if you do something wrong and if you are caught, if you are pinged or you're found guilty of it and you're given a sentence or, or whatever and you serve your time you start again with a clean slate. If the past is acknowledged and the debt is paid, then the offender, for want of a better term, goes forward with a clean slate. Now, whether Jürgen has, has had a debt that he has to pay, morally and ethically, if he was involved in doping, then yes, I think we'd have to say that he probably does have a debt that he had to pay. Does his work in British rowing constitute a wiping clean of that slate, a payment of that debt? The reality is he's he's acknowledged his past. One of the trolls said, once a, once a doper, always a doper. Once a, once a doping coach, always a doping coach. In the last 29 years, Lewin, and you're the scientist, I'm, I'm, I'm not. Can you just remind me if any British rowers have been pinged for a positive test under Jürgen's stewardship in the last 29 years? I'm talking full internationals, household names. Um, not only do I have a scientific background, I have a weird fascination with, with doping, which I imagine is largely based on my difficulty in believing that there are people out there who can be so much better than me <laughs> at the thing I do best without some kind of help. But let's have, let's have a, a thing about this. In the entire history of the UK Anti-Doping Association, Two rowers, both students, both from the Headington Road Young Offenders Institute Rowing Club, have tested positive. They didn't test positive for steroids. They tested positive for modafinil, which is a stimulant which is almost certainly performance enhancing or training enhancing. And the other tested positive for a metabolite of cocaine. They were both in the same crew, neither of whom had been a senior rower. Both were kind of bouncing around in and out of the under 23 squad. Both probably had a future in the GB rowing squad. They now no longer have such a future. It's not just a question that there have been no positive tests in 29 years. No rowers have been pinged. Three decades of looking and this is three decades of ever-increasingly stringent anti-doping activities. Not only have there been no positive tests, you know, there were Lance Armstrong famously never tested positive, even though he did and he covered one of these things up. But there have been no stories of 
positive test. There have been no embittered has-beens, no nearly men who had stories of midnight trips to holiday inns on the M25 to have a bag of blood vacuumed out of their veins in the off-season. Um, there have been no injured war heroes with tales of having to foam roll their EPO injection site, no British rowing. It's, it, it's, a, it's a cottage industry. There are lots and lots of people who now work there. There are PhD-level sports scientists, young people who work there for a few years and then move on to another job. There are no... None of them have sort of like told tales that they had to learn how to administer an emergency saline bag to dilute the top rower's blood when the testers came round to Cavisham. Not a single little blue pill has been found in a coach's bag. No testosterone patches were ordered to cure anyone, any Australian's erectile dysfunction. No dodgy Austrian doctors have been hired. No triamcinolone was delivered in a jiffy bag to a championship event. In 29 years of Jürgen Grobler's coaching, the only argument against the integrity of the ever, albeit slowly, but ever-increasing success of British rowing has been, oh, but my GDR. That's it. Which is why we warned you at the start that if you have the words Jürgen, GDR, doping, or trolls on your card, call work now before it's too late because you will not be going in tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just drink. Just yes. line up about half a bottle of whiskey and start pl plowing your way through it. There's no point counting individual shots. The bottle yeah, is gone. Um, it, it's, it's done now. What Lewin is, is saying is, if you look at cycling, which historically every 18 months says it's on the verge of a new era and it's cleaning up its act, <laughs> and less than a year later, something else happens that indicates that it's a historically and culturally problematic sport people come forward all the time people come forward with stories people ex-athletes who maybe feel embittered they didn't have the success that they should have had ex-administrators who who knew things and ordered things coaches whose contracts haven't been renewed whistleblowers masseuses, masseuses whistleblowers these this isn't just in cycling this is across other sports as well this hasn't happened in in British rowing in 29 years. Now, either this is a cover-up job. Jürgen was trained by the Stasi in the GDR, and he has managed to subvert an entire organization. Is one way of looking at it, or it's a clean sport. Now, I'm going to put in the proviso that it is a clean sport right up until the point when it isn't, because I'm somewhat fatalistic about these things. Um, Lewin is a, is a Southern optimist and I'm a Northern pessimist. That's a shot for Southern and a shot for Northern. But here is the other thing. We've had conversations with an individual who used to work for UK anti-doping control. Between Jürgen taking over, uh, the transition into Team GB and the transition into the kind of the post-Sydney um, conveyor belt of talent that we've had not only did British rowing not have any positive tests it also returned no negative but tests now Lewin's already aware of this because of his science background but this all came as news to me when you are tested as an athlete you either return a positive test which indicates that you have something in your system that you shouldn't have and therefore the the administrative process takes the next steps in that case you return a negative test, which says there is nothing in your system. We will test you randomly the next time we feel it is appropriate or you are scheduled to be tested. And you return something called a negative but test. And that means you're negative, but there are anomalies in your test results, which we have concerns about. We can't ping you for a positive test, but we're going to keep an eye on you. No rower returned a negative but there were other athletes in british athletics programs who did return negative buts never pinged for positive tests but they returned negative buts let's just say that again so in in that period there were no positive tests and there were no negative but tests do you want to elaborate on the idea of the positive negative and negative but Lewin? well it's essentially the negative but could take several forms so we're talking about a period of time before 
um, the athlete biological passport. So th this is, we're not talking about the process of picking up um, anomalous levels of red blood cells or unbalanced levels of red blood cells and erythrocytes and all these things. This is about analyzing people's ur urine samples um, and seeing whether the breakdown products of various artificial anabolic androgenic steroids, as they are officially known, are present. Now, there are two ways that you can do this. One, you can be taking something that is not known. So a strange reading will occur in your test, which will be done by a machine called a mass spectrometer. Your sample will be purified and fed into the mass spectrometer and a pattern of results will occur that suggest there is something anomalous, but you can't prove what it is. You don't know precisely what it is, but this is clearly an issue. And this is what happened with the designer steroid tetrahydrogesterone uh, or THG. Um, that's what in the end Dwayne Chambers was found to be taking when he put on about two stone of muscle in six months after visiting California. Who could have seen that coming? Uh, then you also have this idea that there are legal limits below which a positive test is not accepted as being a positive test. So you can see a clear pattern of results that indicates that an illegal substance is present within the athlete's sample. However, it's present at such a low level that the test has not been validated to say this is a definite result. However, it is a very strong indication that something is going profoundly wrong with that athlete. And th these, are, these are not things that can be accidentally, these are not false positives um, that are present due to natural substances. These are things that, these are results that you could only get because the athlete is taking something they shouldn't be taking. The key to that is that no rower in that period when this source was, was involved returned a negative but. The other point that was made was this. A lot of athletes, and again, no names and no pack drill, this was an informal conversation, would give tests as the runaround. There was a sense that maybe they were trying to avoid or play the testing process off for their own gain. The rowers that were tested turned up on time, they were polite, they were courteous, and they were helpful to the testers. I'm sure that there may be someone from UK anti-doping who, who might want to get in touch and say, well, whatever this person has told you is absolutely bollocks. I've, I've met some rowers at five o'clock in the morning and they're really grumpy bastards. But I'm wondering, we have identified that Jürgen has talked about his past and admitted it. We are aware that he wasn't a shoe-in when it came to becoming head coach, that there was some opposition. He wasn't just placed on the throne and given the keys to the kingdom. People were aware of, of his past. We're wondering if there is a drive, whether from the top down or whether from the administration or whether even from the athletes themselves, that look, we know what Jürgen's past is here. We are gonna be whiter than white because if, if any of us does anything or we are caught, then that past will be dragged up and our entire program will be dragged through the mud. But if this is an act of rehabilitation to oversee an essentially clean program for three decades, no positive tests, no negatives, and crucially, no negative buts. 29 years without even a rumor in the newspaper, that's never been achieved. Armstrong, he had his ice-cold fury, he had his public denunciations of questioning journalists. He only lasted eight years after his final Tour de France victory. The East Germans themselves only had 25 years of dominance as a totalitarian nation with a particularly unpleasant secret police force. 25 years and then essentially the impossibility of the Soviet system caught up with it and it all collapsed. 
the frankly terrifying Russian intelligence service, who are, I'm sure, very nice people in their spare time, they could only keep the fact that they had cheated the entire world at the Sochi Olympics, they could only keep that quiet for three years. And then you had this wonderful German chap, who's possibly one of the best Germans in the world, Hadjo Seppel, was unpicking the threads of Russian athletic success for 15 years before that, so like since the first blood tests were imposed on athletics. You know, no one else has ever managed to keep a cheating conspiracy running for this long. And the people who, if Jürgen is this nefarious doping coach, if British rowing is dirty from top to bottom and has its foul, corrupt tentacles in UK anti-doping and UK sport and possibly the world governing body of rowing, FISA, and the media and all these places, it's a bunch of rather nice upper middle class ex-rowers in Henley. It's not a totalitarian regime. Those are the guys it's competing with and it's frankly doing better than them. And I don't, that's very, very, very difficult to believe. And frankly, the only people with a cleaner record than GB rowing is the People's Republic of China. It's a very good point, well made. And I have it on good authority that the only totalitarian regime that the People's Republic of China genuinely fear are the stewards at Henley. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm terrified of them. Should we, having said this, and I think this is, a, this is another key point, when, G, when GDR were doping, they dominated. Lewin, would you like to explain a little bit about the medal tables here, now that Jürgen, our, our nefarious doping coach, is in charge and, and how well we've dominated? Well, British rowing. yes, we, 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 you know, after 1992 and Jürgen taking over the entire program, which he didn't, he was the coach, he was the head coach at Leander, he coached Matt Steve and Matt, Steve yeah. until um, Atlanta, where they did very well. But it, it was genuinely gobsmacking when I, I looked this up. The East Germans won everything. They sent, they competed in every event in the 72, 76, 80, and 88 Olympic Olympic rowing regattas. And in every single one, they won a majority of the events that they entered. The majority of the remaining events they had podium finishes on. They were absolutely dominant. There is red, black, and gold on all the flags in those Olympic regattas. Once that collapsed, once Jürgen moved to Great Britain and started coaching there, if, this were, if he had brought a doping program with him, if he had brought the full East German method, would we not have started to see that being replicated? And we, we do have this slightly inflated opinion of ourselves in Great Britain when it comes to rowing. We're not, and certainly during the 90s when Sir Steve was doing his thing, we weren't a leading rowing nation. In Atlanta, which was a pretty terrible um, Olympics for Great Britain, we were seventh on the medal table. Sydney, we boosted ourselves up a little bit, it has to be said, but it was a thing of first. It was the first time we got two gold medals, and this is nine years after Jürgen was employed. In 1988, he left a women's squad that had four out of six medals and a nation that had eight out of 13 medals on the rowing lake. After nine years of work, we'd only picked up two gold medals and two silver medals, and that put us third on the rowing table. Now, you could say that was just, right, that was the beginning. It was a constant upward curve from there. It wasn't. Athens was actually a step back. Yeah. It might, you know, we only had one gold medal in Athens. The eight didn't make it out of the B final. Uh, you know, 
creditable performance and everything, but it didn't make it out. It may have been that the Sydney 8, eight was a bizarre fluke. It was a very quick race, and it may be that all the other boats, the favourites in that just thought, you know, the GB boat would fold at 1,300 metres, but we had Ben Hunt Davis, superior inspirational speaking skills. It certainly wasn't down to the size of his puddles in the last 200 metres of that race, but never mind. I've watched it recently. It, 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 it's, it's terrible. Um, but we made it. But it may have been that the eight was, was an extra topping at Sydney. Athens, it was back to one gold medal and other things. It wasn't until Beijing, so it wasn't until 2008, 17 years after Jürgen turns up, that we managed to top the medal table with, again, two gold medals. This is not, this is not the eight gold medals. Yes, so if, if Jürgen had brought a successful doping programme to Britain we would be expecting a lot more gold medals than we actually got. I mean, we are very proud of British rowing, but that's what you're saying. If he's brought this doping thing in and we are a dirty sport and we just don't know about it, we should be having gold medals coming out of our backside, as we say in the Northeast. Yeah, I mean, gold, gold medals should be, you know, it, it, it's something that James Cracknell would be handing out to strippers in Annabelle's, frankly. It, it, he just... They wouldn't value them quite as much. They'd be on every street corner. Small children would be playing with them in the gutters. Dogs would be using them as chew toys. But as it is, they are still this incredibly rare and incredibly heightened achievement, which we should be justifiably proud of. Yeah. They, They are actually rare achievements. A huge number of them in the period we're talking about were were still down to Steve Redgrave, and Matthew Pinson. And without them, it wouldn't have happened. Um, We need to understand that there is no sudden increase in performance that we see either with Jürgen turning up, either with the move from the kind of, the type of doping that you found in the 1980s with anabolic steroids to the type of doping you found in the 1990s with erythropoietin you can actually look at rowing and there is a steady improvement in Olympic final speed um, from the 1970s through to the 19 late nineties. And then it's kind of tailed off a bit. Would it be fair to say Lewin that rather than look at doping for Britain's success, could we not actually look in terms of the timeline you've just described that we start to see success when the world-class start program that was put in place starts to bring through these talents that replace people like Steve and Matthew, who, who did exceptional things. That's, that's more of a solid argument to suggest that we actually put structures in place to funnel talent towards rowing and then try and keep it in the sport. It doesn't say that doping wasn't happening. It doesn't say that there wasn't an immense and incredibly clever conspiracy to um, say that to get our athletes out of positive tests, would it? It's just a better argument. There is a better timeline that actually we started dominating world rowing, and not the kind of dominance that the East Germans had. The kind of dominance that we had two, three, four gold medals at most. It started about eight years, so two Olympiads after the world-class start, after we started throwing money at the problem, after we were able to bring more athletes and more specialists, after we had the dedicated um, Pinson and Redgrave rowing lake at Caversham, none of this fits particularly well with the arrival of Jürgen Grobler. It fits particularly well with the arrival of dozens of immensely well-adapted, immensely talented young athletes who are then moulded in a very, very tough and very, very selective system that only had one goal, and that was winning at least one Olympic gold every regatta. Yes, I think that's an important point to make. 
I don't think that we have whitewashed Jürgen. We've acknowledged his past. We've acknowledged that there may have been a management of the narrative of his past. In doing that, though, we have highlighted the ideas of beyond reasonable doubt on the balance of probability and the idea of rehabilitative justice, which is the foundation stones of all of our evaluatory systems in this country. And weighing it up, you know, we blew up at the start the idea that there is this conspiracy that that formed at Leander to make us the dominant rowing power. And we and Lewin blew it up brilliantly to show the absurdity of it. Because when you stack up what we've just talked about, it is clear that the arguments fall down. One of the trolls said, once a doper, always a doper. I think that that, if he's talking about abusive behaviours, it's very difficult to rehabilitate abusive behaviours and doping athletes under your control is an abusive behaviour. But if that is the case and once a doper, always a doper is a rule, then we may have to say at this stage, after 29 years of no positive tests and as far as we understand it, no negative but tests, Jürgen may be the exception that proves the rule. I think that's entirely fair. To actually address the trolls, to actually talk about what we would have seen had in the 80s and the 90s Redgrave, been, Redgrave and Pinsett been on the little blue pills. First of all, we'd have seen more medals. Okay, now we've addressed that. We've actually, it took us a long time before we got to a point where we could say we dominated. The influence was not principally that of Jürgen's. It was principally that of British Rowing's world-class start program. Jürgen was there, in there. But what would we have actually seen Matthew Pinson and Steve Redgrave looking like? Well, anabolic androgenic steroids have very, very clear markers on the human physique. Now you can see these much more clearly in women because women look less like this. They are androgenic, they are masculinizing, but Steve Redgrave, very big, very strong man. He never looked like a bodybuilder. He was never ripped. He was never jacked. He was never cut. Okay. He did not look like a man, man taking Winstrol or Dianabol or Stanazole. Some of those things may actually be the same thing. Or one of the many available anabolic steroids that you could get in the UK in the 1980s and the 1990s. When you, when you look at him in a lycra, the stomach is not flat. The deltoid muscles do not bulge forward from his shoulders. The trapezoid muscles do not extend above the line of his shoulders to give him the classic bodybuilder bull neck physique. His pectoral, his upper pectoral muscles particularly, do not cover his collarbones and his eyes, I have never seen his eyes as being yellow. Check out a few pictures of Ben Johnson in his pomp, if you don't believe me. Whatever, now, you can take anabolic steroids at very low levels and not get these effects. But this was the 80s and early 90s we're talking about. He, he may have been taking it on a regime that would be familiar to the microdoses of today, but back then that would be in science fiction. People didn't do that. They took as much as they thought they could get away with it. Mm. Um, and the point is that no other British rower, male or female, has fit that physique profile since. Not one. Not one. And it's really important to understand that because, again, ladies rowing in the UK. Ladies rowing in the UK did not take off, did not win a single gold medal until 2012. It didn't win a single gold medal until 21 years after Jürgen arrived on these shores. Anabolic steroids work better for women. You get a much greater boost to female performance using anabolic steroids and the domination of the GDR ladies squad in the 76, 80 and 88 Olympics showed this. 
And also, you know, you, you can look at the uh, rowing story, Helena Sam Smith's work, look up that and you'll hear first-hand accounts of what East German rowers looked like. They were increasingly masculinized. They were massively over-muscled. They had these strange distributions of muscle on their body that you never normally see on women. You don't normally see it on men. It's only really existed since the 1950s and the invention of steroids. We've never seen this. We haven't seen the immense performance boost that you would expect in women's rowing. None of these stories make sense. The narrative that Jürgen was at the heart of a conspiracy to dope British rowing athletes to win everything. We do not see the evidence that we should see of that. And it's so important. Ergo performances. We have in rowing this wonderful machine, the static ergometer, which allows us, it, it's this one brand, any result on one of these rowing machines is comparable with any other result. The new gold standard time for the 2,000 meters is 5 minutes and 40 seconds. We've only just had two men drop below, and we're talking they're still at 5.39 and change. Why, if we're doing all this doping, have we not seen these records being broken by British athletes? Which comes back to the another trolling point, that essentially... Rowing is um, a blood and lung sport. And once you have drugs involved in it, all you have to do is put your power in the water. Getting power and fitness into the water on an unstable platform into a fluid medium is exceptionally difficult. Technique is really important. It's not just about muscles and lung power and VO2 max and, and you know, lactate thresholds and, and all of those things. It's a technical sport. And just to say on a, on a personal note, I think that you've gathered that Loon and I quite like rowing. We're deeply invested in the sport. I think Loon, Loon will agree with me here. We were only club-level oarsmen. Loon, obviously, much, much better than I. But in our experiences, not much better. He had, you know, he had functioning kidneys, but then I, I had a finish to my stroke, so it kind of balanced itself out. Our experiences of how close crews are in dressing rooms, and how aware even club rowers are of how, how hard it is to gain increases in performance, means that anybody doping would really, really stand out. Club rower who has a who has a six thirty one two k score in September was suddenly pulling six minutes, 11 seconds by the end of the season before Henley, everyone else in his boat would be saying, what are you on? Because they would be aware if he'd been rowing for two, four, six, eight years, that it's really hard to make jumps of performance that are that big. And the second point is this, I liked rowing because I rowed with my friends. I liked the fact that we did it together. We set our goals together. I couldn't possibly think of taking anything to improve my performance and then going down and looking Ben in the eye, looking Lewin in the eye, looking Mark Hancock. I couldn't look my captain, Ali Chapman, in the eye if I had taken something. I wouldn't want to be in his boat because I'd feel like I'd let him down. Now, I don't know if that is just me. Maybe I am naive or idealistic. But from talking to other rowers um, in my time in the sport and talking to people in this podcast, I think that there is a, a certain amount of pride in the fact that rowing is seen as a clean sport. I'm aware that it only takes one rower to make a bad decision and we are a dirty sport. And it may, it may happen at some point, but it hasn't happened yet. But that culture is really important. And I think it goes from club level up to the GB level. I agree, basically. I agree. But what I would say is, particularly to our critics who accuse us of being naive and gullible and ignorant and childish and nationalistic and jingoistic, uh, some of which may well be true, um, we, th th these are intangibles that 
we can't necessarily prove. But the culture that Aaron has described is, is real. Anybody who has rowed for any period of time, particularly in a club that has fixed its sights and set its goals in a crew, so whether that they've fixed their sights on Henley, whether they've fixed their sights on, you know, Peter Brad drink, Summer Regatta, um, any of those things, what we're describing is a real thing and anybody in that situation will recognize it. If you actually look at academic anti-doping, if you actually look at how people say, this is how you keep your sport, your team, your club, your boat, your, I don't know, your time trial team clean, it's about culture. It's, it's not even about education. It's about the culture that people have. It's about a culture of integrity that never talks about shortcuts, never looks for the clever approach to winning a race that actually, you know, and, and this is going to happen in rowing fairly soon. And hopefully I'm not breaking any secrets, but sort of like we're talking about how we guarantee integrity in a rowing crew. And it literally comes down to the idea that if we're racing twice in a day and we think we're not going to win the first race, it's wrong for us to pull light in that first race. We should be giving it all. That's literally the level at which integrity in rowing operates. Now, again, it just takes one person to turn around and say, we're not going to play like that. We are going to do, in the classic phrase, the John Romano phrase, whatever it takes to win gold. But please understand the water in which rowers swim. Rowers think in terms of training, they think in terms of technique, they think in terms of getting out in the water. They don't think in terms of which doctor can I persuade to prescribe me this medication. They think in terms of doing the work because, and again, you know, Steve Redgrave carved from granite and set loose on the world by Viking stonemasons, drink, as he pointed out, if whatever they were taking in the 80s when I raced them, it didn't do them much good. The culture of hard work, we believe in doing the work. I think that's important. Yeah. And I know that the trolls will say, yes, but, 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 but drugs, drugs don't mean that, that you don't have to train. It just means you can train hard and you recover fast and you still have to do the work. Yes, but actually, we just believe in doing the work because that's the culture that, that we come from. That's part of the culture of rowing. So yes, I think I think in, in signing off, we have to say, was Jürgen part of a state-sponsored doping program? Yes, he was. Has Jürgen admitted that and talked about it? Yes, he has. Has he gone into specifics? No, he hasn't. Will we ever know the extent of his involvement? No, because the Stasi files have all been destroyed. Can we, can we guess or gesture towards it? Well, yes, we can, because we have other accounts of what happened at that point. Was the red carpet rolled out by the British Olympic Association for Jürgen? No, it wasn't. He was appointed by a private club uh, on a, uh, in a private capacity. He ended up training Steve Redgrave and Matthew Pinson because they were based at that club at the point where it, it was their base. He went on to become the head coach of British Rowing. Was his, his path garlanded with rose petals? From what we have heard, there were dissenting voices because of his past. In the time since he took over as head coach till now, has there been any indication that British rowers are involved in a unclean sport? Now, with the caveat that it only takes one test for us to lose our clean reputation, we've had, as far as we understand it, we've had no positives. We've had no negatives. We've also had no negative buts. We've had no ex-rowers coming forward complaining about 
um, strange, strange procedures they've been asked to undergo. We've had no administrators, masseuses, ex-coaches, sports scientists, anyone involved in the program for the last 30 years. No one has come forward and talked about any of this in the way that they conspicuously have in other sports. So was Jürgen's narrative massaged a little bit? Yes, it probably, it probably was. There probably needs to be a bit more nuance about it. Is British rowing dirty? It's clean, it's clean right up until the point when the first positive test comes in. And I hope that it doesn't for a long time because the sport means a lot to me. I agree. And in fact, the sport of rowing in this country would be entirely and completely clean if it wasn't for the Headington Road Young Offenders Institute Rowing Club, which is something that people don't mention enough, in my opinion, but there we go. Indeed. So, yeah, to conclude, the narrative of accusation against Jürgen does not fit what we would expect to see, what we know an organized doping nation can do at the Olympic rowing regatta is that's not what we see. The accusatory narrative doesn't fit the facts. And more to the point, if you were going to take this risk, if you were going to create this grand conspiracy, this, this conspiracy that's practically French in its evilness and its scope, um, you would be, you wouldn't be happy with saying we had an incredible year. We had the best Olympics ever. We got three gold medals. That's not enough to make this worthwhile. Um, and if it's just a few people popping a few pills and maybe injecting a little bit of stuff into their butt here and there, they wouldn't have got away with it for this long. They might have got away with it up until Athens. They might have even got away with it up until Beijing, but there would have been records. There would have been anonymous blood results. There would have been something. There would, you know, there are people who have left the British rowing system and have spoken publicly and negatively about it. They would dine out free for the next 10 years if they brought drugs into it, but they never have. And I just, it gets very, very hard to sustain the narrative of accusation. If you are a troll and we have brought you out from under your bridge as we trip trap across it, the two billy goats gruff that we are with our tales of Jürgen and our tales of the GDR and our tales of doping, that shot, 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 three in succession. If you are still standing and listening, well done. Sit down, take the weight off. Get back under your bridge because we acknowledge Jürgen's past and we recognise it and we hope that we've talked about it in a nuanced and balanced way and we've evaluated it as best we can. But there is no story for you here. There, there is not a chain of evidence that you can really point to at the moment. And that, I think, concludes our Jürgen Gate episode. We hope that you take a listen, and we'd love to have your feedback on Twitter. We are, you know, polite, well-spoken men of a certain age, but we are indeed Billy Goat's Gruff, and if you, if you bounce out from under your bridge, we will bounce right back. Well, thank you for listening, people. See you Thank later. you very much.